0: Today is December 23rd, 2010, and my guest is Robin Hanson of George Mason University. This is the last podcast I'll record in 2010, and if all goes as planned, it will be the first podcast released in 2011. So I thought it a good time to take stock. I want to mention how grateful I am for the opportunity to spend an hour a week with you out there listening. I think this is our 247th episode, approximately. We haven't missed a Monday for the last two years. I'm grateful to Liberty Fund the foundation that supports EconTalk and the Library of Economics and Liberty, econlive.org, that houses EconTalk on the web. And I'm grateful to the people I work with, Lauren Landsberg and Rich Goyette, who do such a great job getting, to these, getting these podcasts to you with tremendous sound quality and great resources online to help you learn more if you're interested. Finally, I want to thank all of you out there who make this experience so rewarding. You're probably listening because someone told you about what we're doing, so please continue to spread the word about EconTalk to anyone you think might enjoy it, and please keep your suggestions and feedback coming to mail at econtalk.org. As I've said before, I read every one of them, even if I don't always respond. Your feedback is a huge part of what makes this experience so gratifying. Now for today's guest, Robin Hanson. Robin, welcome back to EconTalk. Thank you. Our topic today is uh, fitting for the end of the year. It's... uh, Kind of an end of days topic for uh, for some folks. Uh, a new world that we might we might be uh, entering. The idea of what is called a technological singularity. The idea. Of, I hope I'm getting this right. And you'll correct me if I'm not. That technology could advance very rapidly, leading to a discontinuity in growth rates. So rather than small incremental growth of two or three or five or even ten percent a year, we would get dramatically higher growth rates. And along the way, we would develop a radically different relationship with machines that would have very high levels of what we might call intelligence and maybe some other attributes that we would not see today. So I want to start uh, and ask you, you've written a lot of interesting things on past growth. Talk about what we've learned about looking at past growth as economists and why that leads you to suggest the possibility and maybe even the likelihood that we would enter a new world. All right, if, if you look at the history of the past century, and uh, economic growth in the past
1: century, what you see is overall a relatively steady trend. You see over the last century, growth in the world has world roughly grown every 4% a year, doubling roughly every 15 years. And when people do data sets of this, they try to fit this roughly steady trend, and they come up with models that predict pretty steady events. And that all makes sense over the last century. But if you look farther back in history, if you go back 1,000, 10,000, a million years, what you see isn't steady growth anymore. What you see is steady growth punctuated by a few very sharp, very dramatic transitions. Uh, and so, in some broad sense, you know, in all of human history, two big things have happened, or three big things, if you will. First, humans showed up and we somehow differentiated ourselves from the rest. Then, roughly 10,000 years ago, uh, the farming revolution happened. Not exactly sure what was the key cause, but there was a sudden change. And then roughly 200 years ago, there was the Industrial Revolution. And the thing that distinguishes these changes from all the thousands of other big important things that have happened in history was that at these moments, the growth rate in the human economy dramatically increased in a relatively short time. So from about 2 million BC, or 2 million years ago, until about 10,000 years ago, the human race was slowly growing from about, and they say initially, 10,000 people to roughly 5 million or so people. And that's at a growth rate of doubling roughly every quarter million years. When you say the growth, that you are talking about? The number of people.
0: Just in population.
1: Right. Really, technically, it would be more the the niche we fit in, because there might have been some crashes where a lot of us got killed off, but then we quickly came back and filled the niche. So uh, in terms of our species or the kinds of species like us and the niche we were filling, we were slowly growing and expanding across the earth, uh, being able to do more kinds of things, fish and woods and deserts, et cetera. So uh, even in the ice. So we, we learned how to live in more kinds of environments, we had more kinds of tools, we had more kinds of capacities, and that let us grow in number.
0: But we, at that point, over much of that time, we were we were growing in number and in capabilities, you say, to live in different ecosystems. But within any particular ecosystem, life was pretty static. Correct or not correct? Well, I mean, we doubling every re really
1: years means that, you know, on any human timescale, life was very stable. Uh, I mean, there might have been, you know, Fluctuations in the environment or, you know, some tribe wins over another. But in terms of long-term history, technology and ways of life were pretty stable over a very long time. Uh, but people did eventually acquire all these capabilities, and so they were able to live at higher densities because they could live off of more kinds of food in the area. And eventually they were able to live at high enough densities in some places that they could stop moving, which is kind of the definition of farming. Yeah, right. <laughs> Instead of wandering around to grab food, you could stop moving. And when you could stop moving, you could have more stuff because you didn't have to carry it with you all the time. And having more stuff meant you could have more kinds of technologies that you could accumulate and use. And it meant you were closer to people. You could find them more easily. You could have trade routes. Uh, you could had stuff to trade. And so uh, the farming world was very different. And uh, suddenly... Within a very short time, say within a few tens of thousands of years, uh, instead of doubling every quarter million years ago, we started doubling every thousand. Big change. It's not only a huge change, but it's, it's like a factor of 200 in growth rates at least, and within a much smaller than a quarter of a previous doubling time. And we're not exactly sure why the growth rate was so much bigger. I, I suspect it was because of trade routes and the ability to share seeds and things like that and spread them across Knowledge, regions. Right.
0: All kinds of things could accumulate that couldn't have accumulated before.
1: Right. Um, but that was a huge change. It was a really big deal. And then for the next 10,000 years, no. 5,000 years ago, we doubled every 1,000 years. Now, that's a big deal doubling every 1,000 years. But on, obviously, on a human timescale, the farming world looked pretty stable.
0: Yes, as I think uh, William Baumel mentioned, the first person I saw say it, uh, a Roman farmer would f- be fairly comfortable with life in the sixteen hundred. Right. So over that, to us, very long period of time, there were some improvements. We learned some technologies we didn't have before. Right. The plow got a little bit better, but it was a pretty similar world. More people, though, right?
1: Right. Well, I mean, the, in all of these growth modes, it was technology that enabled the growth. So it's it's clear that it wasn't just... We could have grown in population far larger had we had the capacity to support the larger populations. It's really clear that the reason the population grew was because we figured out how to support a larger population, and that's primarily technology of various sorts. So technology and knowledge was always the key to growth, but how fast we could grow that knowledge and technology suddenly had these huge changes. So we could grow it very slowly with when we were foragers and living very low density and not being able to carry much stuff with us And then as farmers, we were able to grow much quicker, but it's still slow compared to today. And then with the Industrial Revolution, within a very short time, a few hundred years, which is small compared to the 1,000-year doubling time, we went from doubling every 1,000 years to, over the last century, doubling
0: every 15 years. And And again, I I want to focus on when you say doubling, you're you're talking, usually when we talk about growth rates, we're talking about standard living, but you're talking about population, but it's also standard living.
1: Right. So we're taking world product as the product of the number of people times the per capita product of each person. So we're taking sort of the standard capacity of the economy to make stuff. So over most of human history, when world product grew, we spent that on more population. And per capita wealth didn't change much. But in the last few hundred years, we've grown so fast, doubling every 15 years, that we population hasn't kept up. So per capita wealth has increased. because
0: and that's revolutionary. That, right. That's first time in human history.
1: It's 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 a very important, and very enormous, unparalleled, right? Because we sustain this growth rate in the economies over a long period of time. There've been you know periods of time in the past when there have been sudden crashes and sudden growth, and temporarily people were very well off, and temporarily they grew fast, but you know, ran out.
0: So that's nice for those of us alive today. We, we've got our heart valves and iPads and. Air travel and all kinds of pleasant and some not-so-pleasant things um, along with them. Mostly pleasant. Um, So that's it. We're going to now continue to grow and double every 15 years, and so that's good. So
1: so the usual debate about the future, and framed by academics and and economists, is to choose between, say, three scenarios. One is things continue to grow as they have. Which is the optimistic scenario, usually described as there's a pessimistic scenario that things crash and we all die, and there's because sort of
0: say r- you know
1: environmental collapse or war or we run out of materials or
0: institutional something. failure and
1: who knows right? But that's the negative scenario which you take seriously, and then there's the happy medium scenario. We have to find a way in the middle, yeah. not to fall into oblivion and not to rise naively into the sky that won't be there. But we have to find a way to have a stable right. medium in the middle, and that's and the that, usual debate.
0: And that optimistic one is. Again, about a 2% per capita growth, growth rate up. in the developed countries, maybe a little higher in the underdeveloped right. to get them, they're going to catch up some. And- right, and,
1: but even that optimistic scenario, obviously if you project it, say two centuries or 150 years, 150 years is, would be 10 doublings, that's a factor of 1,000, right? So you say the optimistic scenario continues for another 150 years, the world will be a 1,000 times more
0: productive. Hard for people to, to grasp, but right. that if you have trouble grasping that, what you want to do is go back 150 years ago <laughs> and think about life in 1850, which was very, right. very different than life today on virtually every dimension.
1: Right, so this is a pleasant in many ways scenario, although if you think it's unsustainable or unfeasible and then we're, we're deluding ourselves, <laughs> yeah. then you think we're in for a big rude awakening when we find out it can't happen, right? But those are the three usual scenarios. Now, the fourth way. <laughs> right. But I think you should, in addition to taking all three of those scenarios seriously, you should take a fourth scenario seriously, which is that we could have another dramatic event of a similar magnitude than, say, the three most dramatic events we know about in our history, which are industry, farming, and then the arrival of humans in the first place. Both of which were largely unprecedented in terms of previous trends. Unexpected and, and came out of the blue. In terms of a time scale, they were very short time scale compared to previous timescales, and they dramatically changed the time scale of what was happening. So if we just take those events and we just do numerology, we just say, we don't know where these numbers come from, but let's just pretend like the next thing that happened would have a growth rate increase similar to the previous growth rate increases, and then maybe the modes the number of doubling times that happened during each mode are similar. We just use those numbers to project the future, not knowing how, where this comes from or how. But just saying, hey, maybe things could be I'm like, like a the chartist test. in the
0: stock market world. There a little, you go. Just little a look naive. at the graph. Little okay. naive, but, okay. it could but be. you
1: know what else you got. So if we did that, we'd say, well, we can get a remarkably tight prediction for the growth, the new growth rate, because these increases in doubling times have actually been remarkably consistent. And so what you get is roughly in the one to two week doubling time range. So pause, let that sink in. So I say that it again, begin, one to two week doubling time in the world economy. That instead means Instead of the current
0: 15 which, years, which by the way, again, I think most people are probably shocked to think that
1: it's 15 are. years. because They look back 15 years and they go, the world doesn't seem that different 15 years ago. How could it have been twice as rich? That must be happening somewhere else now. But it is happening here. And that's, that's an important thing to realize. One of the reasons the world can change so fast is that it can change in ways you don't see and interfere with your life. It, if you had to notice all these changes, it couldn't change as fast because you'd say... You know,
0: I don't What want to, am I going to do with this? <laughs> you'd, you'd be in the way. Yeah. <laughs> we figure out ways to grow with it where you're not in the way. Okay, so every two weeks instead of every fifteen or so
1: years. Right. So now the interest rates would have to be on a similar scale. So that means if you have got a pile of money and you put it in the bank, it doubles every two weeks. So this would be obviously a strong temptation to
0: save. Yes.
1: If if you had ordinary human, you know, time scales, um, which
0: we might live a lot longer, it might be real different. And-
1: Right. Uh, it means that, you know, even a small amount of mon- money within some short time becomes a large amount, enough to live in some, you know, comfort, presumably, if not in the center of attention. So uh, that's a ridiculously hard thing. But there it is. That's two weeks. So the other question might be like, when would that happen? Now, how long these things have lasted kind of varies. And in fact, you might think from the past two transitions were kind of overdue for one, if you just want to take the numbers at it. On the other hand, if you want to go farther back, you might say sometime in the next century. So we don't get a very sharp time prediction other than roughly in the next century, but we get a pretty sharp prediction about the new growth rate.
0: One of the reasons that's hard to underst- to adjust to this idea is the fact that before these transitions occur, life looks really stable. So if you're a hunter-gatherer yeah. 12,000 years ago, you have a pretty stable life that looks a lot like, if you knew about it, your great grandparents. Sure. Uh, and similarly, if you were a farmer 6,000 years ago or 4,000 years ago or 2,000 years ago, farming is farming. And someone said, Oh, there's going to be this thing called the Industrial <laughs> right. Revolution. You'd say, Well, that's not plausible. And here we are after the Industrial Revolution. And life looks, as you say, it's pretty stable in the sense that, barring the occasional financial collapse like we're in the middle of right now, uh, you know, the economy in a developed country goes 3% a year, which is pretty good. gets you doubling every 25 years, 20-something years. It's not bad, and that's the way it kind of is. So it's hard to think of to go to a radical change when you're in the middle of what is all that you know. It's very challenging, folks. So tell us why there might be a glimmer of what could bring this about other than just, well, it's happened before, it'll happen again.
1: So the first thing to just mention is that um – Human timescales, you know, are not the only timescales in the universe. We, we know about lots of timescales, the life of stars and galaxies and Longer, atoms vibrating older. and all sorts yeah. of things. <laughs> so it so happened that until recently, you know, the growth rate timescales were just vaster than ordinary human lifetime scales, So you just didn't notice it in a lifetime. And now it happens to be near our lifetime scales and we notice growth, but it's on our order of magnitude. So we we sort of... You know, see it happening over a lifetime, but there's no physical or logical reason why it just couldn't be a lot faster. <laughs> it just depends on how these parameters work out. All right, so that that's sort of set it up. So now the question is, okay, yeah, that's nice numerology, but you know, if we, if this is actually going to happen, it has to happen with real stuff in the world around us, right? There has to be something that actually embodies it or supports it. So, uh, if Foragers were looking around and could they have foreseen farming? Could they have envisioned the idea that if they stopped moving and stayed in one place that suddenly things they could have trade routes and oars and all sorts of things? I don't know. Could farmers have envisioned industry if they just made these machines a little more reliable and a little more standardized, maybe had a factory line? Could they have envisioned that they would really be this
0: useful? Well, it's pretty hard. Probably not. Could somebody in 1960 imagine in 1962 I saw a computer that was used for the early warning system in case a Soviet missile came over the horizon and we wanted to know where it was going to land. So there was a computer to help do that. That computer took up a space that was the size of a warehouse floor. Of course, it didn't have the same, probably has less computing power than my iPhone 4. Uh, (laughs) I love when people say that. I don't know what that literally means, but it could be true. Um, So if you'd said, in fifty years, you are going to have something in the palm of your hand that does right. what this room does. You'd now, say,
1: "Well, now there were people who foresaw that sort of thing, so that wasn't an impossible thing to yeah. see because there was what was called Moore's Law, and there were these yeah. trends in computing costs, and you could just project the line out." Now, of course, they'd had a decade of experience. They had I, don't Moore had,
0: I don't think Moore <laughs> had, had put his law forward in nineteen sixty, but yeah, I get your point. Right?
1: So, so they had a short time and they had to project along, but there were ways to project that. But so, there is a reasonable case to say, you know, you are just not going to be able to predict what the next thing is going to be, and you know. It's probably just going to be something you haven't thought of. And fine. But that doesn't sound much fun. Fun. <laughs> Why don't we take the things we know about and at least ask for each of them? Could this be the thing? Could this be it? How, how plausible is this going to be to be the big thing that would do this? Now, this is a, a reasonable exercise to go through because we're, we're setting such a high bar for a new yeah. technology here. <laughs> you know, there's lots of really big important technologies that could come along that could do a lot and be important, but just not at this level. This yeah. is really a really high level. So we could look at, say, surveillance and say, well, surveillance is important and you'll be able to watch more things and it'll change privacy and maybe change marriage and change work relations. And there's lots of things surveillance could do. Could it make the economy double every two weeks? Just no. Sorry. <laughs> You know, And you think, hey, space colonization, what if we like, got space elevators going and get stuff off to the asteroids and back again and big solar collectors? And that would be cool and it would add to the economy. Can that stuff grow every two weeks? Not a chance. Sorry, it's just big and slow and no, not even close. It's,
0: <laughs> distance challenges there, which would be very hard to overcome.
1: Tonight. Right, right. You can even think of, you know, what if cold fusion or some great energy technology came along?
0: Right, and it made and things more efficient. And we there. have
1: bigger steam shovels and bigger rockets and transportation. And we don't like have to charge my phone every two days instead of For every example, day. Right, it'd be huge. Know, so. A new energy technology could make a big deal. But even then, we only spend you know, less than 10%, maybe less than 5% on energy in the economy. But
0: it's in everything, Robin. It is in Loving everything. people say that as if that, that's, that's an <laughs> argument is. ender. But it's in everything.
1: Right. And maybe you, know, you have enough cumulative indirect effects that you can't quite see. You don't want to you know, cross those all off. But the direct immediate effects are limited, right? You don't spend very much on energy. So if you make energy cheaper, it can't, can't still do win. that much for yeah. you unless you figure out a lot of new things to do that you aren't doing now because they're too expensive. You do some, but that's even hard to see. Even nanotechnology, this idea of making which little, which is tiny, a popular right, making little tiny machines, which you can make other machines and make lots of stuff, that has maybe more protect, potential. But even that, what it does is it makes capital for manufacturing cheap, which is great. But manufacturing is fifteen percent of the economy. Capital for manufacturing is you know seven percent or something. It's. Still pretty small. Right, right. But then we come to the scenario of something like artificial intelligence, robotics, machines that are capable like people. And then you pause and you think, well, you know, seventy percent of income goes out there to labor. And a lot of the other parts that's a secret, by the way. So just say that again and explain what it means. Where's all the money going? When people, when you buy stuff, the money goes somewhere, who gets it? Well, the, the factors of production, the things that, who contributed to the stuff you made. Well, who are those? Well, obviously there's raw materials and there's real estate and there's the owners of the company and there's managers, but basically, most of that is labor. It's the people, wages. Most of them, m- when you buy something, most of the money goes to pay the people who are involved in making that stuff.
0: And that number, 70%, or it's maybe closer to 67 in the United States, is pretty close to a constant, occasional here, that it's Crept downward to fifty something, but that's usually by leaving out compensation, other parts, benefits, compensation. The the amount of the pile of stuff that goes to labor is just about seventy percent, and that's just been for a long time. And lots
1: of indirect. The other thirty percent includes a lot of indirect labor. Sure, lots of ways in which people thought up the machines. Right. They own a patent, and you now the pa- counted to the patent, but it was the labor that went in to make the patent, etc. So, and so, the entrepreneur <laughs> that
0: runs the business that gets the right. other what's left over, so right? So they they, that's, they this that's comes a person, out in stock, but they put, they put the effort in,
1: right? So it's all anyway, people. so most of income in the world today goes to people. If you can make that a lot cheaper, you could make everything different, right? That's big. And this robotic artificial intelligence smart machine scenario, at least in principle, has the potential to do that. You think, well, if you really have a box out there that's really smart like a person and I can have it do a job instead of a person and it's a lot cheaper than a person, well, yeah. You actually you put that into a standard, just the idea of having a box like that into a standard economic growth model, not only can you get you know a big change in the economy, you can get a big change in growth rates. Because, in fact, our growth rate is limited now by the fact that we can't grow people very fast. So we have you know, labor and capital in production, and we can make capital grow fast, but we get diminishing
0: returns. You have all this capital, but only a little people. It takes you know? 25 years to 22 years to right. produce a college student, a college graduate. It's right. a it's long a payback slow, period.
1: expensive, right. If you can make boxes that replace those people as fast as you want, well, now you can relax growth
0: rates in the economy. Rob, and then people wouldn't have any jobs. So why don't you make people feel better about that if you can? Because that's technology. Uh, Let me just say two things, actually, one thing before that, which is that manufacturing in the United States is a big political issue, and people talk about how we don't make anything anymore in America and how America's being hollowed out, et cetera, et cetera. But in fact, of course, the dollar value of what we make is is very, very high. We still manufacture a lot of stuff in the United States. Uh, We just do it with a lot fewer people, and we've done that through technology, there are factories, I'm told, I've never seen one, but uh, where no one works, uh, which allows them to be cold and dark uh, sometimes, uh, because people like warm and light. And one of the ways we've gotten richer over the last 50 years is by stripping labor out of, technolo- uh, labor out of manufacturing and freeing it up to do other things. So one question people would have in this scenario is, well, if machines could do everything, what would be left for us to do? There'd be nothing left
1: so there's a whole bunch of issues uh, that we can come back to here but to rest your point immediate point if uh, you know,
0: oh, my second point though is that just like your earlier remark that it's only a corner of the economy it can't just be smarter robots making cars faster we're talking about machines that would do things now like give you a haircut some of the services
1: right. uh, re, you know revise your will yeah uh, you know sue for you in court whatever you know write a script for a movie Yep. Right. So if these things are really
0: broadly capable, then they would do a wide range of the tasks. Teach economics, are, for example. You just put your okay. head in the box, and you take it out. You know economics. Even- for example, <laughs> if, if
1: uh, I don't know if that's possible, but okay. So you know, Econ one hundred and one is uh, that uh, you have some assets, you have some resources, and then you use them to uh, get things you want. One of the assets you have is your ability to work, but um, you work in part because uh, that's a way to get other stuff. If uh, it wasn't a way to get other stuff, you wouldn't work so much. Maybe you'd do some other stuff, but you wouldn't call it work. You might call it volunteering, or you might call it retirement, or leisure, or other sorts of things. You'd fill your time, and some of that time filling might be productive, but you wouldn't be doing it because you needed the money to work because that wasn't part of you know your assets. Now, this requires that you have other assets, of course. <laughs> if your only asset is your ability to work, and that asset becomes less valuable, well then, your portfolio becomes less valuable. So, uh, But clearly, in a world like this, overall, the entire world is richer. The entire world has more capacity to do things. So there is more total wealth, and as long as you make sure you have a cut of it,
0: then you can also have more wealth and get the stuff you want. So there is a question, let's put this aside, maybe we might not even get to it. There is a question of the allocation of, pro- of product that... It might be hard for us to envisage right now, but let's put that to the side and and let's – but I also have to mention that there have been times in in human history where people did imagine an end to scarcity. They were wrong. They imagined higher growth rates and they said, well, when we get that wealthy, of course, we won't worry about stuff anymore. But, of course, that hasn't turned out to be true. We invented new stuff that we cared about and enjoyed, and so those predictions have all been wrong. So I'm not sure – that your prediction, even though wealth will be doubling, output will be doubling uh, every two weeks, it's not obvious that we would just sit around and be leisurely uh, and enjoy the fruits. Somehow. Well, I mean,
1: in fact, if you look at the leisure class in our society, they're pretty busy folk.
0: They work hard, yeah.
1: <laughs> right? They spend a lot of time volunteering or starting new th- ventures or, you know, even hiking, et cetera. But I mean, they're, they're not just sitting around staring. They're, right. they're not like wallies staring at TVs, although some of them obviously are. Uh, but I mean, the basic fact is, is in our world there are people who are independently wealthy. That is, they don't have to work f- to support their lifestyle. Many of them, most of them, spend a lot of time doing things that look like work.
0: But very many wealthy. All, my, my point really is that there are a lot of wealthy people who don't just uh, cut coupons, as they used to say in the old days. They don't just let their wealth grow because they actually want more than that. There, right. they continue to work. In fact, they work very hard, but they might sure. work for a shorter amount of time, lifetime-wise. But
1: they choose to work on other considerations than the wages. They, they, the wages don't have to be as important to them in choosing the things they do. But many of them do, and they use those
0: wages to buy things that in nineteen forty or right. sixty people would have said, "Oh my gosh, those are right. you know couldn't be imagined." New things come along that you want to work for. Is, is all I'm really
1: saying. Sure, sure. But the, in the in the scenario, the question is: uh, If you choose to do some activity, how much will you get paid, and how much will that influence your choice of the activity? If the amount you get paid is really small compared to the other wealth you have, then it's a small consideration. It doesn't mean you won't spend your time doing stuff. It doesn't mean that stuff you do won't be useful somehow. It just means that won't be the issue, unless, of course, that's the only money you have. In which case, yeah. <laughs> you're in
0: more trouble. Yeah. But let's get to this. Um, get back to the question of what might actually happen. So, intelligent machines that would. Yeah.
1: We described this pretty abstractly so far. We just yeah. said, imagine there's a box that could do what most of what it, most people can do, but cheaper. Well. We said, if that happened, we have all these implications. It's a pretty dramatic change from the world. And yes, that could be the kind of thing we called in the past a singularity, say, farming, industry, the growth of humans. So that would be on that scale.
0: Yep. But no now we have it. to
1: ask, yeah, that's a nice abstract description. Get there from here. Uh, yeah. Is that mechanically possible? Is it possible to make such a box? And, and is there any reason to believe it will happen anytime soon? Okay. So now we're getting more into the technology of it. And there are a number of scenarios people elaborated for how this might happen. So first of all, we have machines out there and we have software out there and they are they have some capacity. They're not infinitely stupid, but <laughs> on some grand scale they're they're pretty stupid. <laughs> and slowly we're adding more capacity to software, we're making more kinds of pieces of software and machines that can do more kinds of things. So you could just say maybe that trend will just continue. And maybe eventually the end result of that trend will be really high capacity machines with a lot of uh, ability to do things.
0: So an example would be your car light comes on to tell you that your uh, tire right. needs air. That's a smart car. The word "smart" is <laughs> in quotes there, uh, but a smarter car would fix itself. Smarter car would drive. Yeah, and in, for in fact, sure. we're,
1: we're actually not that many years away from being able to field cars that drive. Google's actually done a uh, set of uh, field trials with uh, cars that drive. So there's more. It seems to be more legal and regulatory barriers. Uh, Liability barriers there at the moment than that. So, But that's a big deal, right? Cars that drive, that's smarter. But, and don't crash. <laughs> yes, of it's important course. to add that.
0: It's easy to build a car that drives.
1: And, of course, don't drive over people to get yeah. in the way. And all, all kinds of the sorts of, of details, there. There. right? right. Yeah. But okay. But so there's that. That's one scenario. But you got to say, if you look at the trend there, and you just say, well, how fast have we been improving, and, and how far do we have to go? It looks like a long
0: way to go. People have talked about it as a possible singularity. Right. It hasn't shown the potential. That- right, it hasn't happened yet. And, and and the trend is
1: pretty slow, that is you know we've we're doing remarkable things with machines now, and uh we'll do even more remarkable things, but in terms of you know humans are still getting the vast majority of income computers as a percentage of world income, you know down in the few percent if 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 that range so
0: you know but that's your view. there are people who think that's the way it's going to happen right
1: right so uh in this space there are every possible view almost can be yeah. <laughs> identified with representatives uh, so we is. just sort of go through but conservatively, you'd say, well, what's been happening, just project that forward, is one possible scenario. You've got to give that credit. You know? yeah. It's actually there. It's happening. It could
0: take it quantumly within its boundaries. Right.
1: And- right. Now, another scenario, people sort of who have more of a physics background or something like that think, well, we haven't found the theory of intelligence. We haven't found the great equations. And if only we f- discover the great equations, then everything will look much easier and it's like trying to do chemistry without knowing about atoms or something you know you're just fiddling around and don't know what you're doing but once we've got the equations then everything will be vastly
0: easier you mean when you say the equations you mean some theory a deeper understanding of how matter connects to other stuff well
1: a theory of intelligence as, in such a way as to make it feasible and simple to make it now, of course, the correct theory of intelligence could just be, it's one big hell of a mess, and there's yep. just lots of detail. It's just like <laughs> the correct theory of how to make an or- biological organism, the functions in the world is, well, there's a hell of a lot of detail, and you have to get it all right. And there is no grand theory of how to make a tiger. <laughs> there's just a lot of pieces about how to make a tiger. Yeah. Right? And that could just possibly be what's true about intelligence. There's nothing deeper or central. It's just a lot of p- things you have to get right. Which is, of course, the way most of the economy is, really. Uh, but some people have hope for this grand theory. Uh other people hope that there's some way of of making a machine that if even if it 's really stupid can learn fast or like r- figure out how to make one that can read and it reads all of our stuff and then it knows a lot and you know there's f- some varieties like that um Most of these are sort of long shots in that you know there 's not much evidence so far that anything's going to pan up but you can't rule them out either i mean it could happen
0: yeah it just seems to be a misunderstanding between data and knowledge right it's the internet whatever that means, the, whatever this means, I'm going to say, the, the internet knows an enormous amount, more than any of the smartest person in the world, but right. it it's not useful. It's it knows. <laughs> and it's not right. useful. It's not integrated. In yeah, some it doesn't know how to integrate way. it. The brain is a very remarkable, remarkable thing. Absolutely. So that's one of the it, things we're...
1: One of the definite things you learn in building this RGB are very impressed with the brain. <laughs> yeah.
0: Brain's Don't great. know how
1: it works, but it does remarkable things. Yeah. All right. Which bring, leads us to the last scenario, which is uh, porting software. So, um... People have spent many years writing software, and often they write software on some old machine and some old language, and then it gets obsolete. And they want to have a new machine that that works a lot like the old one, except it uses the latest hardware and the latest computer languages, et cetera, like that. And one approach, of course, is to go talk to the people who made the original software and try to create a model in your head of how it worked and then rewrite a new piece of software that functions the same way as the old. A different way of getting the software that does the same thing is to what's called port the software. What does that mean? You make an emulator in the new machine that makes the new machine look like the old machine, and then you take the old software and just
0: run it on the new machine. And it only the only challenge is the emulator. You just got to build right. the emulator. Right, which can be
1: hard, but it, you know, basically you have to make the new machine look like the old machine so that the old software runs just fine. So that's one approach we can try to take to make smart machines that work like people is to port the human brain software.
0: What would that mean exactly? I've read a little of what you've written about it. It's Try to explain that.
1: So your brain is a bunch of cells that send signals to each other. And you have different types of cells, and they have different types of parts, and they've got connections to each other. And your brain software is um, two parts. There's the which cells are where and who's connected to who with what types of connections. And then the other part of the software is, well, how do these cells run? I mean, what's the rule by which cells take signals coming in and turn them into signals coming out? So when I talk to you, signals go in your ear, go through this whole signal processing, comes out to other parts that decide for you to talk back to me, etc. That's what your brain is, is these cells with a set of connections between them and how they relate and then how each cell works. So to port your brain, we need two things. We need to actually figure out which of your cells of which type are where in your head. And then we need to know how each of your cells work
0: Uh, under the... And we need to create a box (laughs) that can, an emulator that could absorb that transformation, right? Right. So once we get this
1: information out of your head, then we have to make a computer simulation of your head, which basically simulates your cells in their connection to each other. So if we know how each cell works, we have a model for each cell, and we can implement that model on a computer, and we have in this computer the, the connections between your cells, and we just make in this computer... The same arrangement of connections, and then we turn it on. If the if if we know what if we've got it right, if we've got the connections close enough, and we've got your cell models close enough, then this new model should model your brain. That is, should have the same input output behavior. I talked to it, and, and it would
0: give you back. the answer just that I'm giving right now. I'm having a little bit of an out of body experience here. So I'm sitting. You know, some of these podcasts are done over the phone. This this one, Robin, being my colleague here at George Mason, we're doing this face to face, and I'm I'm looking at his brain. It's encased in his skull, and mine's in mind, and we're doing this primitive thousands-of-year-old thing where we're talking, reaching our own bodies with their physical limitations, and it, it is somewhat uh, exhilarating and interesting to imagine, skeptical, skeptic that I am, that we could go to a different model of that interaction. So our, this podcast could be created by the Robin Hanson black box talking to the Russ Roberts black box back and forth. And would, would it replicate is that the one we're actually having? Well, now, these boxes could be sitting in bodies that look a bunch like ours
1: and sending sound to each other across a room like ours. So if at that level, they doesn't have to be that different. That would
0: be very primitive. I and mean, one of the things that strikes me about this is um, there's an irony here, which is there's a certain lack of imagination about this imagining, right? Here we have, we've got these big brains. And we're gonna the way we're going to get Head is we're going to try to replicate this messy right. physical thing, it's, and we're relying on this metaphor of a computer. That just because that's the hottest thing, and it sounds like well, something it's some, also
1: humiliating. If you have to admit it, what you'd you know, the human race would be prouder of itself. Yeah. It came up with the grand five equations of intelligence and implemented that in the some grand thing we created. But this approach admits that we don't know how the hell we work, and we're not going to know anytime soon. And we should just make a copy of this complicated mess that we don't get.
0: But there is a reductionist element to this, which says, and this is controversial, I assume, yeah. because it, I find it challenging, all there is to our brain is its physicality. There's nothing else there. That's not universally accepted, correct?
1: Right. Now, I have a physics background, and, and by the time you're done with physics, that should be well knocked into you. Um, you know, Certainly most top scientists, if you in survey questions, will say, yeah, you know, that's it. You're a brain and this has just, just chemicals and electricity, and there really isn't much room for anything else. Sorry, uh, there's just not much of an open. Que- it's not like it's an open question here. It's, um... we, we haven't really seen much in the way. You know, physics has a pretty complete picture of the stuff that's in our, our world around us. Where you know, we probed every little nick and cranny. We only ever keep
0: finding the same damn stuff. I guess the argument would be, and I, I, I thought this was more. Respectable as a scientific view, maybe it's not. Um, we haven't made much progress on those fundamentals, right? Well, we uh, we have
1: uh, a, enormous progress in in seeing the stuff our world is made out of. Making some sense of of a larger picture of it is is much more challenging. But you know, almost everything around you is the same atoms, the same. Yeah, you know, protons, right. electrons. There's a rare neutrino that flies around. There's photons, and that's pretty much it. And you you have to get pretty far off to even see some of the strange kinds of atoms and you know materials that physicists sometimes probe. Physicists have to build these enormous machines to create these very alien environments in order to make new kinds of stuff to study, because they have so so well studied the material around us. Where it's, you know the things our world is made out of is really really well established. How it combines together in interesting ways is. You know, it gets complicated, and then we don't
0: get it. But the stuff it's made out of, we no, get it. That part I agree with you. I just wonder. Your head is made out of chemicals. No doubt about There's that. The, you can't, you know. No one can deny that. The question is, is the sum merely the sum of the parts? The whole merely the sum of the parts? I don't think everyone accepts that, do they? Well. In the scientific world. We've never seen anything else. Right.
1: Agreed. <laughs> So you know, it's always theoretically possible that if something's really complicated and you don't know how to predict the complexity from the parts, you could say, well, therefore, could be this whole is different than what the parts would predict because it's too complicated to predict,
0: right? But that's you know, that's just sort of. I guess that's you could call it just a linguistic difference. I, I guess the question is, replicating. Let, let me let me say it a different way. We know how to build a replica of the Eiffel Tower. Right. We could do that. We could make a functional replica. Making an exact replica I understand. is very different. We could make a functional replica, though. One right. that from a distance would look the same. Up close, you're right, wouldn't have the same patina, the same right. rust, the same... You, you could tell. Right. You could, could measure that. Th- you could tell they were different. But you could create a functional replica. We're not close to creating a functional brain. Right. So, so tell me what, why not and why we might be able to get there. You know, if if you uh, a better way to say it is the the quote smartest, the most successful, these words fail me, the most advanced, the biggest computer uh, fails at most of the tasks that we would want this to do, right? So we haven't gotten close to that level of intelligence, and the AI, the artificial right. intelligence promise of tw- say twenty, thirty years ago, which was very optimistic about our ability to leap forward, f- has not proven. Successful. So we should just separate two very different issues here.
1: One is sort of technological understanding and knowing how things work and how to make things, and the other is knowing what the world is made of. So I make this very strong, confident claim, we know what the world is made yeah, of, and we know what pieces they are and how they interact at a fine grain. We know that. But at higher levels of organization, we don't know how to make other things. Like even photosynthesis in, in cells, we don't know very well how to make a whole photosynthesis machine. Or we could make a bunch of solar collectors that were you know, efficient and powerful. You could take your phone out of your pocket and take it apart. And you wouldn't know how to make a phone like that because there's other people who know how to make it, and they're not you. So, and a lot of the biological world around this was designed by not us, and we don't know how it works but we're pretty sure what it's made out of. Agreed, sure. but that's not, that did get very far. Right, so uh, in terms of artificial intelligence or making a machine that was as smart as a person, it's clear that if you're trying to design the machine based on an understanding of the human brain, you're just a long way off. And that's the whole attraction of the porting scenario, where you say, you don't have to know the design and the overall organization and the basic you know, architecture. You just have to know how the pieces work and copy those. If you you don't know how the pieces work and you copy those, that's enough because the whole is the interaction of the parts.
0: So what do we not know now about the pieces that keeps us from doing that?
1: So this scenario, which we've called whole brain emulation, taking a whole brain and emulating it on a computer, requires three technologies. One is scanning. You have to be able to scan something in sufficient detail. Uh, You have to see exactly which parts are where and what they're made out of. Two, you have to have models of these cells. That is, you have to have a model of the cell input signature and then what comes out of it as, as a mapping. It doesn't have to be exactly right. It just has to be close enough. And then three, you need a big computer, a really big computer.
0: Because there's a lot of cells.
1: Right. A lot of sense. A lot of connections. Right. A lot of interactions. Absolutely. So on these three technologies, we can do trend extrapolation and say, where are we now? And if trends continue, how long would it take? Um, the computing technology has a nice, solid trend. We've got this very solid computing trend. And we should project that pretty confidently into the future. And the problem is we don't really know how detailed we're going to need to go into these cells. Okay? So... Uh, the, the um, scanning technology, uh, we also have decent trends. This is a vastly smaller industry, so if there was a huge demand for it, it could, it could grow much more quickly, but it's a very small demand, so there's a small industry. But still, that technology actually looks roughly to be ready first. Uh, we've actually done a whole mouse brain at a decent resolution, done a scanning of an entire mouse brain. It's a factor of a thousand smaller than a human brain, but,
0: you know. What does that mean, scanning of a mouse brain? Well, they
1: they, scan, they slice a layer. They do a two-dimensional scan of that layer at a f- resolution to go across the edge of each cell. Uh, and then they slice another layer, and they do the same thing again. And they've done that for an entire mouse brain.
0: So let me ask you again a sort of a naive question. If... You could take a person's brain out of their head while they were still alive. You're, you're, are you going to be able to get access to my memories in this process, my creativity, my, all these things we think of as something more than just a physical process? But of course, as you say, it's just chemicals interacting. Is it imaginable that we would be able to reconstruct my memories? Well,
1: to the extent we're confident that your like memory where's the and hard your, drive? Your memory and your personalities are encoded in these cells, and where they are and how they talk to each other. So we get that right. We have got to be getting it all right because
0: that's all you are. Could be okay. Carry on. Uh, well, certainly, but let me say it differently. Looking at it isn't enough. Obviously, just, just staring scan. at them. No,
1: staring at them. So scanning means sort of noticing the chemical densities because. There's there's thousands of kinds of cells in your brain, and uh, each cell sort of behaves a bit differently. And what we need is to know, you know, when a signal when a cell gets a signal from the outside, like electrical or chemical signal, you know, how does that change the cell, and then what kind of signals does it send out? So we need to have a model of each of those cell types, and um, that's we 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 have actually models of a f- wide range of cell types. It doesn't seem that hard to model these cells, but we just have a lot of cells to go through, and then there's not that much motivation to do it all in a rush. So we aren't, but um, we have actually pretty good models of cells, of some particular cells. where We have the cell in a, in a dish, and we send a signal to it, and we got the model on the computer, we send a signal to it, and they do the same things. And, okay. You know, but Start. again, <laughs> we, there's just so, a lot of these cells to go through.
0: So part of the problem is the largeness, uh, the diversity of the brain. This, this, right. The number of cells and the vastness in which they operate, the different types of tasks. But the actual mechanism... How understood is that mechanism of what it connects the these cells to each other and well we've we can see
1: you know when you see an act, when you can see sections of active brain you see these signals going through people put probes in and watch the signals so people have watched brain activity and they've seen um, they've even like created uh, ways in which they send off radioactive signals to watch where the parts of the brain are active and we've done a lot of watching of brain activity. Certainly, as a first cut, what's going on is that brains are sending signals to each other. So we've seen activity going on, and uh, we've modeled these in various ways. But uh, you know, again, I'm not going to be able to persuade you at much more detail than I have so far. I'm just here's the basic concept, here's the basic pieces, and then we can talk about where, what, if it worked, where it would go, and we can talk about which things are how far along. And more interestingly, we might talk about well, which, how does it matter which thing is ready first or last? So if we've got three technologies we need, one of them
0: will be ready last. And that could make a difference for how it all plays out. I I just have to go back to that scanning thing for a second. Because if if I could look into Beethoven's brain when he was creating the Ninth Symphony, I could look into Shakespeare's brain when he was creating the Hamlet, and I'm picking these as sort of two great human achievements um, that were not inevitable. That were not inevitable, sure. as opposed to many other great things right. that were maybe eventually discovered by somebody else. Right. You really think that the if, that it's imaginable that we would understand that physical process well enough that we could get his tenth symphony? That's what you're saying, right? Let's take your. Great to have only wrote nine, so it'd be great to have a town. I take wish anything
1: now that a computer does, right? I presume you use computers, and they do useful things for you. And
0: at the moment they're doing something useful, you say, yeah, I great. like how you say that. I presume you use computers. Robin's so <laughs> alarmed at my, at my uh, resistance to his materialistic <laughs> argument. But he's got to reduce me. I think I'm somewhere in like 1650, maybe Newtonian sort of kind of. But okay, go ahead. <laughs> so so if you, there are ways with like
1: certain diagnostic things to actually see the individual memory in the computer and see which bits are flipped on or off. If you just had a way to like just look at the memory in the computer and see the pattern of on-off bits um, and see that pattern of bits while the computer did something interesting or something you respected or you liked you probably see a little relationship just looking at the random right. bits in the computer wouldn't make much sense to you at all right because you're just looking at the pieces without understanding so how, how they are put together so how you get to reverse engineer
0: the creation of the symphony
1: This computer, when you looked at the bits, you couldn't make any sense of it. You could still port the software. And you could still have some confidence that if you know the machine language the software was written in and you get a copy of the software, you could port it to another machine and it could do the same amazing stuff. And you still don't know how it did it. (laughs) That's the whole point of porting software is you don't have to know how it works to get it copied over as long as you know what language it was written in. So the key thing is to say... Now, if the brain was something else than cells sending signals to each other, you say, "No, no, you misunderstand. You're, you're paying attention to the wrong thing. There's these neutrinos bouncing around. You're, yeah. you're not even seeing them, and therefore you're missing the main activity in the brain." And I said, "Yeah, well, that, if that were true, we'd just be wrong. We'd be copying the wrong thing. Leave out. We're leaving out the yeah <laughs> the main thing. But if the main thing is these signals going back and forth, and we get that part right, then it's got to okay. get the whole thing. I mean, just like you know, if you you have a dish of food and you think it tastes great, and you see the ingredients they made the food out of, and Put them together in the same order, well, either you, you saw what ingredients they had in the right order, or you didn't but if, if you get the same ingredients and you make them in the same way,
0: should make the same food okay carry on but looking at the ingredients <laughs> isn't going to tell you how it tastes right no that's true I just not go ahead i'm fine i'll, I'll play <laughs> i'll play along I, I understand the argument it's um part of it is you know being a religious person i 'm I'm I'm capable of of imagining something that's not observable. So that's one issue. And I also just worry about the limits of our ability to um, fully master complex processes with, that have random elements. But maybe that's just a matter of time and, as you say, application of effort to it,
1: and resources. We should, we should always throw in a, an uncertainty here of there's stuff we don't understand and we might just be wrong about something we're missing. So happy but, to throw that in
0: here. But you just said it's, then it's just a matter of time before we figure out, well, there could be stuff we'll never understand. There's, that, there's
1: no possible. guarantee.
0: It's possible.
1: But still, for projecting forward, we have this history of learning more and having big things happen because that's so what we're trying to project the future. Thinking that we might learn a lot more is one of the that's things we start. consider, right? right? Carry
0: on. So let's, get, let's go back to, uh, we've got three processes right. that we need to, st- and this is only one possible. One, one of the
1: scenarios, right? Right. The Sorry. one I think is the most likely, so which is why I'm emphasizing it. It's uh, the most predictable in the sense it looks like it just, no matter how long it takes, as opposed to whether it happens. Okay. Um, and so uh, it's a way to make these boxes that are very intelligent and can substitute for people. Now, the way in which these boxes are constructed, interestingly, makes it easier to predict a lot of things about how this new world will play out. Because these boxes aren't just machines that are smart. They are machines that are smart in the same way we are. And so these boxes, in terms of their motivation and their personality and their thought habits, are just like us, at least at the beginning. So,
0: in particular, so, they're just like somebody... Right. They could be just like Robin. Right, for example. But they might not be, right? They could just be, we'd make a Robin who didn't have whatever mild, minor, well. tiny flaws you have in your brain <laughs> process. I don't know what they are, Robin. Hard to imagine. So, but. so you know, the
1: whole point of porting the software, it's hard to change ported software very much. Yeah. Right? Because if you don't know how it works, it's you can make some random changes. Most random changes that can make a mess can make it worse. yeah so you'll presumably you get some efficiency gains.'ll you'll, you'll basically start throwing things out of your simulation to see what you don't need. and there'll probably be a lot of stuff you don't need because there's the essential part of the process and there's irrelevant detail we copied when we made this whole emulation. And we'll figure out how to throw away irrelevant detail, so that'll make this thing cheaper and faster, which will be good. but you know some detail some things we throw out we think is irrelevant turns out to be relevant. We turn it on doesn't work. But so, but once we've got these boxes that are cheaper and faster, their personality and motivations is just like the person you started out with, except there's what changes. Well, you can run these things faster. That's one thing that you can make them different. You can just turn up the clock rate or turn it down. That's one nice thing. Another nice thing about these things is that uh, you know, you can swap out parts so they could be effectively immortal in principle, right? If, if you keep the parts working, it can keep working. Another thing is you can make copies. Well, once you have one, you can have a thousand, you can have a million, however, because that's what you can do with computer code. So that makes a big difference. If you can have one of them, you can have lots. And so.
0: Uh, with you, the ease, you just drag your Robin Hansen on your right. desktop over into that other folder, and right. you make two of them.
1: Right. You start making copies. So that's a big deal. Um, in terms of. So you're never alone
0: at dinner. You've always got <laughs> you plenty of want. good conversation well, at dinner.
1: And whether you can afford these things. So again, <laughs> the economics comes in. In principle, you can make more of them, but they cost. So we have to think about the economics of this new world. So, wouldn't
0: this- it be like it would not be like software copying, which is relatively cheap?
1: Well, software copying is relatively cheap when you can afford the hardware. But, but these are things uh, take up a lot of space. Well, they're big and expensive. Family. But also, you know, they're the things that are paying for this stuff. So if, if you're really rich and you've got a small thing thing that's small compared to your wealth, then you don't pay. Doesn't not much of an issue. How expensive it is, but if it's a big thing relative to your wealth, then it's an issue how exactly expensive it is. So, you know, you don't mind having a large music file because music files are all pretty small. You might mind a large movie file because movie
0: files take up more space. If you had an even larger file, it would be more of an issue for you. But here we're thinking about, you know, I buy a dishwasher which is relatively cheap, right? But I'd like a dishwasher that put the dishes back on the shelves, and you know, all the right. things we'd want of in a modern. Uh, science fiction future, right? Um, yeah. So I mean, so these would be great. These imagining would be awesome. yourself as being a
1: rich, a leisurely person with access to buy these things uh, is a scenario that puts you in the center of wealth and attention, and seems like a great scenario. But now you should switch around and think about things from, from their point of view, because uh, these things feel like us under this scenario. They need to be motivated to do whatever they're doing and they have to they have a
0: world and a life and the question is what does life look like to them yeah that's the part i find a little bit mysterious about this discussion so let's 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 digress here for a moment in, in the, the first time i heard of of the singularity i heard a pessimistic story which i m- mentioned briefly in the kevin kelly podcast which is the idea that these machines would be so smart that they would improve themselves make other machines that were more um, uh, capable at an ever faster pace, and eventually either we'd become irrelevant or enslaved. That would be the dark side of this story. Um, I have trouble understanding, and of course, it's lack of imagination, but I have trouble understanding the morality and sentience of these creations.
1: Well, so that's why the scenario I described makes easy it easy to say, for you. It's easy to say it's just like me. Well, it's an emulation that was built to be just like you. You turn it on, and it thinks it's you, and you have to convince it, no, it's now just in a box, because it remembers It would being, be in a box. Or they're
0: like, you're right. right. You say, I, I'm just asking, wouldn't the challenge be bigger? It, let's suppose there was a version of me that looked just like me, Maybe a little taller. Just, right. to, just <clears throat> going to exploit the technology a little bit here. Instead of being five seven, maybe right. five eleven. Really take a stretcher, or maybe six five. Uh, Playing the NBA, but anyway, uh, you'd run into me at the grocery doing my shopping for me. Uh, so this this thing is this box is running. My, it's glorious. It's running my errands. It's it's buying gifts for my right. friends, et cetera. <laughs> it's brushing my teeth in the morning. You're, you're assuming it does these things, of course, right?
1: But now you have to look at it from its point of view and ask, well, why does it do these well, things?
0: Well, but it's mine, and I and I programmed it, and
1: I can tell it to do it. You didn't program it; you made it, which okay. is not quite the same. So, so you make
0: your children. I presume you, I say, you, well, you made your children, and your children
1: aren't quite programmed.
0: Yeah, but I've noticed that. But are, are you suggesting? But I made my TV, and I can turn it off. I didn't make my TV. I bought my my right. TV was constructed. I can right. turn it off. It can't say no. I want to keep going. I, I, this is a show I really want to display, and I want. To, I like it loud. I just I turn it off. <laughs> right? Why would these things be different? I understand why emotionally I might imagine them being different, but aren't they different? Are, are they different from me? Aren't they more so, well, like the TV? So
1: imagine you go sit down in the scanner, and uh, you know put to sleep, and then you wake up. I know many hours later, and you, you get out of the scanner, and now you have to pause and ask, "Well, am I the who's left? Yeah. You know, am I the guy who got into the scanner, or am I the new copy? Yeah, right." And now, when you think about it from either of these persons' point of view, you have to wonder, "Well, what's my motivation to do the things I'm supposed to be doing?" Now, there are many scenarios here. One extreme scenario is slavery. So, uh, you wake up and you think, "Gee, uh, that didn't go somewhere. well," and then the other rush says, uh, well, it's time for you to start working for me. And you say, I don't want to work for you. And he says, look, uh, you work for me or you die, and here's my torture button. Let me just show you what the pain feels like. You got that? Okay, there's going to be more of that unless you do what I say. And you start to do what he says, right?
0: But when when I get in the scanner, wouldn't I have the setting set that it would say he won't have a torture button and he won't have a... Right, So, but now
1: when you anticipate this, you might think about what the deal is before you get in the scanner and whether you want what happens when you come out the other end. So now... As economists, I need to think about everything I understand about an economy and put together a consistent story of labor economics, growth, etc., to ask what will this world be like with this new technology. So I think economics is powerful enough to give us a lot of insights into what a world would be like when you introduce a new t- technology, even one that makes something as strange as this. Uh, so it doesn't have to be a slave. That's one scenario. It doesn't have to be. Another scenario is... Uh, you get in, you know you'll make copies of yourself, and there's already a deal about these new copies' lives. And you've approved that deal, which is why you allowed for the copy in the first place. You said, okay, he's going to have this wealth I'm endowing him with, and he's going to have this job opportunity. It looks like a good job he can work at, and yes, well, I'm going to split up my possessions with him this way, and then he's going to go off to Indonesia and work there, and he won't bother me, but i will we'll send messages once in a while. right? So you can imagine a world like that. You okay. make these copies, and... You make them with the understanding they'll have a certain sort of certain life. rules of the game. Right. Uh, and now, if that's the way it works, now you have to imagine a competitive world where lots of people choose to do this or not and which ones will win out in the competition and what will the market look like. So imagine that you are a company and you're trying to sell these boxes to people. And uh, the reason people buy these boxes is they're smart and capable and do lots of stuff. But of course, if these boxes like talk back a lot or complain a lot or suddenly sit down on the job, well, that's not going to be such an attractive box to sell to somebody. So you want to find people who will fill these boxes who will make a good arrangement. So it's a sort of middleman labor, uh, you know, seller sort of scenario where they want to find people who are, say, yes, I'll live under that scenario. That sounds an acceptable scenario to me. You know, I'll, I'll, work this many hours a day, I'll get this much leisure, I'll be earning this much wages toward my own discretion. Uh, And then you could imagine, uh, for example, uh, if you create a creature, a copy, then it's up to you to fund that creature. And if you don't fund them enough, then you might run out of money. And well, that's the way it goes because you didn't fund them well enough. And then we imagine different people choosing how much to fund copies of themselves, how much to pay for them, what side of constraints to make on them. Well, since any one person could in principle make trillions of copies, presumably you have a big selection effect. The people who are willing to work for less, who are more productive, willing to accept, you know, worse conditions or, or less advantageous conditions, you can make trillions of copies of them. So if you've got billions of people, all of whom say, well, you can make a copy of me if this condition holds. Well, I mean, just right now, there are millions of people who would be happy to have you, uh, a record company, sell their songs. Sure. Lots of people offer to sing songs and have you make millions of copies and sell them around the world, right? The record companies are very selective. They don't just randomly pick people to make copies of their songs and distribute them. They pick the musicians who make the best songs but also are willing to make songs at an acceptable economic arrangement to, yeah. the, to the studio so that they can make a profit on selling those songs. And they are very selective. In the end, you have a small number of people, you make lots of copies of songs from those people, and, you know... And even there people have a preference for variety so at least you have some enforcement but in a larger labor world it's not clear how much variety preference it would be
0: so part of the problem I'm having with the story in grasping the, the implications for growth is is this story similar or radically different from a more traditional artificial intelligence story in other words this Brain emulation strategy, which is really just a way of of expanding population in a certain dimension, you could call it that, right? It's creating college graduates, Mike, your case of mine, PhDs in a relatively short period of time instead of the 27, 26, 28 years it takes. Very cheaply. Right, but what would be... In, in the traditional story, and, and maybe they dovetail eventually, but in the traditional story, a device is self-aware or self-repairing or self-motivated through so-called artificial intelligence rather than the mere replication of a human brain. So, I shouldn't put the word mirror in there, rather than the replication of a human brain. So... S- In that world, the sort of traditional story of artificial intelligence, there still would be an issue of you know, could you beat up your robot or would you feel comfortable beating up your robot? Would it let you? Would 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 it let you? Does it have rights? Yeah, what vengeance might it take on you? Could it get out of control? It it seems to me that the set of moral and and philosophical issues and legal issues that would be raised by the emulation strategy is different. Is Is that true or not true? It's more a small subset. So when you talk about artificial intelligence,
1: you're really, in a quick way, talking about a vast space of possibilities. Because the the space of possible minds really is vast. Minds are incredibly complicated things, so they can be very, very different. So when you talk about the usual artificial intelligence scenario, you're talking about a scenario that's often not specified very clearly. Clearly. (laughs) And it's really potentially covering a really wide range of things you could assume that we will find a way to design intelligent machines such that they're willing slaves and there's there's never any issue of them rebelling or, or, or not obeying whatever you tell them because you've just designed them that way, but that's one corner in a vast space of possible minds. So the Holbrook emulation scenario is one way to pick a place in that vast space for a particular reason of, of plausibility of how it is to construct, and it happens to be a place that we can reason more about because it's more like the kind of it's minds familiar. we're familiar with. Yeah, it's familiar. And so uh, it really cuts down the the difficulty of analyzing art the generic artificial intelligence scenario, which is generically
0: really hard to say much about, but the whole rebellion thing is just hard to understand, so imagine for me, and you know this comes back a little bit, a little bit to the Kevin Kelly idea that you know what technology wants that, that the idea that the technology can quote have a mind of its own, and I understand that within a, within the sense that I understood him to mean it, which is an emergent order sense that that there are certain natural processes and and that yeah. we can't control them. We can direct it, them, steer them, influence them, but we can't control them. This is a different them. level.
1: I mean, there's, there's yeah, a l-
0: This is different. This is more like animals, or like horses, or, right. or llamas, or right. So that's kangaroos, what, right? right? Yeah. <laughs> or, so the idea here would be that my car, um, that i want my car to... I, I don't understand how we go from a world where... My car drives itself, and I say, go to the store, and it goes to, you might pick the wrong store, but but it doesn't say, I don't feel like going to the store. I'm in the mood for a day at the beach. How do we get from, how does a car go from its current world, which is fairly remarkably dumb, actually, but much smarter than a car of 50 years ago, to a world where the car would have, quote, a mind of its own? What does that mean? it might be simpler to just take the world we've always had of creatures with minds of their
1: own and think about the extension in that direction. So, in farmers uh, and herders have had animals, and animals have minds of their own. And in the vast space of all possible animals, we've actually been very selective and only domesticated a very small number of animals, the ones who are most cooperative at basically letting us, treating us as the head of their social group and doing what we say. And... You know, there are many very smart monkeys out there who would, could do a large range of the jobs in our economy if only they would cooperate. not yeah, you know, they'll, they'll cooperate. But yeah, in fact, they, they, they do the job for a little while and then they, like, randomly smash a bunch of stuff <laughs> and that turns out to mess up the whole economic equation, right?
0: Just like a person. They would <laughs> urge for a banana.
1: Just It's part of life. Right, and yeah. so humans have actually domesticated humans to a remarkable degree yeah. so that humans are actually cooperative, far more than a random animal, so that humans can actually fit and do many human jobs. So, uh clearly you know we don't want to take a random creature with a random motivations and random tendency to do whatever it does and that's hard to use the random animals are
0: hard to use uh so again when but that's we, because we didn't design them. We right. try, by the way. We breed them. Yes, that's right. We, we breed them for dos- right. docility and up to a point because yes. we don't want just a... And so so, so would, there's a key question about artificial intelligence is will it be designed? Because the whole brain emulation is not designed. That's a key point to think about. It. Yeah, Pause that, that's it. the difference, right? Yeah. You didn't design that; You just copied yeah, it, it, just, it. Yeah, okay. Fair enough. So that would have, definitely would have, quote, a mind of its own. We understand right. it is a mind of its own by definition. But, but the other corners, many of the other corners of right. AI of artificial intelligence would they might be designed in ed- which case they would be
1: controllable right assuming which seems plausible that we can de- design controllable things i mean it's not since we don't really know exactly how to make these things we don't know that that's true but it seems possible yeah. that we can design controllable things if we can design them but there remains the question of whether we can design them. it's it's related to the question of say artificial cells i mean cells are really complicated things and we might imagine designing our own cells, and then we could, in principle, imagine designing our cells with, whatever, cells with whatever features we want. But if it turns out that it's just too complicated to design a cell, we just stay with yeah. the cells we've got and we modify them somewhat, well, then the future path of cells will be things that uh, retain a lot of the features of old cells because they were just too complicated
0: to change. Okay, so I want to get back to the economics and the growth idea. So if we stick with the emulation strategy... If we had that capability and some people availed themselves of it and they bought from these vendors that were offering this opportunity, the quantum leap that we would get, the singularity part, let's forget all these ethical and technical issues for a moment. Let's just think about what the the economy would be like. We would have an opportunity to create a lot more people a lot more quickly, the effective people. Why would that lead to enormous increases in growth? Is it only because the copying cost would have to be very low, right? We just said you know you'd get a college graduate right. in twenty-two years instead of twenty-two years, you get it more quickly. Is that going to lead to a quantum? So there's several things going on. Those things aren't going to eat, by the way, are they? Well, they'll use resources of some sort. Electricity, power. Yeah, uh, but they're not going to. They can sit out in the rain,
1: maybe. Depends on again, you know, what they're made out of, what we yeah. design, but presumably, yeah. So uh, one. Thing is that if these I would not are, leave my box out in the rain. I would bring them
0: inside. If, if these are made out bad. of
1: computers and computer <laughs> technology, then they would inherit the rapidly falling costs of computer technology we have today. So computer chips get you know, twice as cheap every two years, and then these boxes would get twice as cheap every two years, even holding everything else constant. So that would be one reason why. Uh, and then if the economy is made out of these things, then the, everything in the economy is getting twice as cheap every two years. So just right there that would suggest a much faster growth rate merely because of the kind of thing they're made out of are things that are getting cheap fast. So but that's not that's not afford- the main effect even. That's just one right. easily
0: identifiable effect. So I could afford more of them. You know, I, I could um, But if they don't you know, if they don't work for me. If they're not controllable, yeah. why do I want one?
1: Well, the same way for an employee. I presume you've considered having employees in the past, even though you, they aren't your slaves. But they do stuff for you, and you pay them, and they do it. So these would just be cheaper ones, ideally. Yes, cheaper employees.
0: Because why would they be cheaper?
1: Uh, so actually, Ricardo got this right back in 1820. So the f- first paper, 17, actually, but yeah. Well, I think Ricardo in 1820 published a paper oh, okay, on
0: okay, <laughs> I think of the principles. Robots
1: <laughs> substituting for people. Uh-huh. He actually did the decent analysis of what happens if robots substitute for people in a simple calculation, and he found the straightforward implication that wage, when a person and a machine are substitutes, direct substitutes, then the wage the person gets can't be any higher than the cost to rent the machine. Yeah. So when the machine gets cheaper, the wage get, falls. So um, if we, the world economy is dominated by employees' uh for which it's easy to make more of them and and rent those machines, then the wages have to fall at the price of the rental price of making the machines. Uh, Under a scenario where, of course, uh, people make nearly as many machines as it's possible to make and still uh, not lose money. So it's more of a zero-profit constraint. Uh, Some people would be very shy about making copies of themselves.
0: Other people would not. No, but but I hadn't thought about this this way before, but an employer... Might create a bunch of these. An entrepreneur would create a bunch of these of, of himself, right? To save to save on labor costs, and that's what would drive down the price of competitive labor that was competitive with whatever skills his. I'm thinking that you know right. I, I keep bouncing back and forth between these. As I have three things I keep thinking about. One is it's just like having a kid. You know, it goes out in the world, it does its own thing, and I a fan of population growth, which is a minority view, but I think more people are good, more creativity is good, more ideas are good, more trade is good, economies of scale, et cetera. Um, the flip side of that, of course, is the environmental worries on sustainability, limited resources. I'm not as worried about that as the average environmentalist. So that's one type of model. The second model is, gee, it'd be great to have a couple of these around the house. They'll rake the leaves. They'll do all the things I hate doing. Right. They'll empty the dishwasher, etc. They'll do the shopping, um, and so I'll make a few for myself, and they'll be cheap. They'll they'll be like the dishwashers of the future. The third is, boy, this would be a great thing to put in my factory. I'll make a bunch of them. So are are all three of these going to be happening at the same time? So we're talking basically labor economics, uh, but we're talking labor
1: economics with a new supply curve. We're talking a new sort of supply of labor. So all the other usual labor economics stuff applies all the usual insights into where labor is allocated. It's and it's tricky because it,
0: it can't just say that your wage will be driven down because if they're complementary to certain types of labor, they'll increase the wage rate of some types of people. It's only the substitutes that will have, right? The, the key scenario is that
1: um, if I can just make a new me for $1,000 and then I can rent this new me out for you know $0.10 cents an hour, um, I may not choose to do that. But if there's millions of people who can... It just takes one of them to choose to make lots of copies of himself and rents himself out at $0.10 cents an hour. And if one person does that, then none of the rest of us can really earn more than $0.10 cents an hour in competition with him. Well, we can if we have different skills. Right, but, but in terms of direct substitutes. Yeah, that's right. what I meant. So, right. so the direct substitutes, yeah. So so then the question becomes, you know, large uh, areas of the economy where lots of people have very similar skills, would they very quickly wages would fall to the cost of writing the machines. People who had very specialized skills could keep wages higher, but now other people would be more gunning for those high-wage tasks and trying to train some copies themselves to do that. So uh, the larger labor economics looks more like software economics then, uh, where each software vendor, primary cost is the training cost, as opposed to making the actual copy cost, the same way for music, right? There's a very low marginal cost, but a high fixed cost and so then the cost of creating a new worker who knows a new new kind of thing has to be spread across how many copies of that will you sell and uh, the wages that would then be set not just by the marginal cost of the machine itself but the cost of the rental of the the software to to run it.
0: Do you think immigration lowers wage rates in the United States? Allowing immigrants in the United States lowers wage rates?
1: Uh, On the margin, uh, all else equal, um, it's hard to tell. Uh, there's certainly a direct effect of what's the radiation. difference between
0: that and this? Aren't these just creating a lot of immigrants?
1: If if the uni- if the if the world had trillions, which of I immigrants- think is good for the world, by the <laughs> way, if, if there were, if there were trillions of immigrants, like in the water just off the shores,
0: right, just waiting to come in, <laughs> all just bring in.
1: waiting to come in, and they were each willing to work for a dollar an hour, then yeah, wait for for the kinds of things they'd be willing to do for a dollar an hour, then
0: right, but but that right. would free up. Those things would fall in price, right? There's all these more complicated second and third level effects that that we'd worry we'd worry about. Well, in this case, we'd be happy about, right? So when you say that that wage rates would 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 go very low, I'm not quite sure that that's true.
1: Well, we can take any other like actual thing that's sold at marginal cost now in the world and apply the same argument. So presumably there are many things at the moment which are sold at prices pretty close to marginal cost.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure.
1: Right? And the reason why you're not tempted to make those arguments is it's a small fraction of the economy. So if those people don't make very much money, well, it doesn't change everything else. Prices are just driven to marginal cost there.
0: And the other people who now can buy that stuff at much cheaper prices have expanded opportunities that can help the people who lost their wages. It's it's a complicated story.
1: Right, so clearly... uh, in principle, anything that gets cheaper out in the world makes the rest of the world richer, and more, right. therefore changes cheaper. the demand curve. And so yeah. in principle, could raise the price of that thing because the demand goes up. Right? But for most small things, that's a small effect. Uh,
0: All I'm saying is I don't think that the only effect, say, of a, of a large immigration to the United States of a particular skill of labor is to impoverish the people who have that skill and make things cheaper for everybody else. It's a more complicated dynamic. But that's the
1: simple supply and demand, right? If you're doing simple supply and demand, that's the straightforward supply and demand effect, right? If you've got, if you've got a flat oh, supply right. curve, right? right? A flat supply curve going off into the sunset, right? Yeah, I agree. Then uh, you intersect supply and demand, and however much demand increases, the price still falls back to that flat supply curve. Supply curve is flat. So the question is, how close are we to a flat supply curve in this scenario? Now, if you talk about immigrants from other countries, well, the supply curve isn't flat there. There's a high elasticity in the sense there aren't that many people actually ready and willing to come to the U.S., and it takes money to get here, and you know, the, the first few would come, but the other people would be a little more reluctant. So there's an upward sloping supply curve in the world about supply of immigrants to the U.S. Um, but if it's really a flat supply curve, if, they, if, there's a ton, you know, if there's a wormhole bringing aliens from other galaxies, and they're all willing to come in or I guess the uh, South Park time machine from the future coming back to work, then the flat, flat supply curve brings the price down to supply. Yeah, to that level. Right.
0: And who gets rich?
1: Well, as usual, uh, people who have scarce things get rich. So in this economy, there'll be um, people who own patents, of course, on the process. There's people who own uh, factories that make these machines. There's people who own real estate in important areas where you want to transport and travel, these, move these things. There are people who own the key raw materials that are inputs into these process. You know, This entire world is by definition much richer. It can produce much more, but it needs input somewhere. Whoever owns those inputs then owns wealth. And uh, even owning a small fraction of that wealth can make you uh, be able to buy a lot from this product- barely productive world.
0: Right, but I just don't think we have a full understanding of how the – well, one thought I have is the demand for real people. But maybe there will be a distinction that's hard to to measure. Now,
1: in some sense, if you, you could think of a sort of the spectrum of jobs available in terms of the relative advantage of machines, these kind of machines and people, and you could sort them that way. And then you could ask, uh, well – there are some jobs that have a really high advantage of people relative to machines, and uh, on those really jobs that the people are the best at relative to machines, uh, then those jobs
0: can get a high wage. But these people are going to be just as good as people.
1: Well, if they're maybe better, if they're better in in everything, right? Then, then that's not true, right? So it depends. For if you really wanted a human waiter at your restaurant, and that was sort of high class and high status, right? Then, well, so that,
0: that's one way. But I'm just again, I, I keep coming back to sort of more mundane arguments like you wouldn't want to argue that population growth over time is going to lower wage rates because it doesn't.
1: Right. And, right. and so what, what's different about this? So this, this is a, um, a way to understand the relationship between humans and machines as both complements and substitutes. I think that's the key sort of conceptual barrier to economists understand. So Ricardo did this paper in 1820 about humans and machines as substitutes, and he got the straightforward substitution effect. Uh, the more traditional view of economists over the last century, starting at least with Wixell in the early 1900s, was that humans and machines were complements. And so when they're complements, then as the machines get more valuable, that makes the wages Correct. more valuable because you just, need each of them together. So the question is how to understand trick here. whether humans <laughs> are substitutes or complements. And I think the way to solve this is to understand that there are many different tasks that need to be done, and tasks are complements. But humans and machines can substitute On a task, so
0: what sense are the tasks uh, complements?
1: In the economy, there are just many things that need doing, and the more, the better we get at doing any one thing, the more valuable doing all the other things get. So, for example, transportation is valuable. If we transportation gets cheaper, then we are tempted to transport more kinds of things, and each kind of things we might transport becomes more valuable because we could transport it. Um, Tasks are complements in the in the vast economy. Tasks even within a company, even within a factory line tasks or complements. You need to do quality control. You need to pick up the materials, et cetera. You don't do all the tasks. You don't get the product. Um, So a marginal product goes out to, you know, people who do tasks that are valuable on the margin. And when things are complements, then uh, all the tasks have marginal value. And then tasks you do better make the other ones have higher marginal value. Uh, So when machines just did a small range of tasks, and that range of tasks didn't change very much. And when the machines got better, all the other tasks became more valuable. But if they could do everything, it's a little more... Bar- so, but as machines get better, there's also a substitution on the margin effect, that there are tasks that people used to do that you use a machine for instead. So there's the bulk effect of, overall, as machines get better, they raise the value of all the other tasks being done, but then there's an on-the-margin substitution of switching over who does which task. And then there's this basically this curve that represents the relative advantage of humans and machines. And if that curve is really steep, then mostly you have this complementary effect. Mostly, as machines get better, they mostly make all the other tasks more valuable and they raise the wages. But if this curve gets flat in some region, then it could be the big substitution effect. A small range increase in the ability of machines means they suddenly do a lot more machines, tasks than people did before.
0: I mean, usually you imagine that there are things that you'd want a physical person for. But again, in this scenario, the way you've described it, it seems hard to ar- argue that there'd be much of an advantage to a person. Right.
1: Because uh, these things It'd are inter- so capable yeah. of doing such a wide range of things. But that's good. From a broad economics point of view, that's good. It's good to have capable machines that can do lots of things, If, if at least if you have a chance of owning the machines or owning the inputs to the machines. Well, let me, well, let's.
0: We're, we're, we're an hour and. 21 minutes into this podcast. Yeah, you get to cut stuff out if you want no, to. No, I don't it. cut anything out. Um, <laughs> unless you have a sneezing vent and you haven't had one yet. So, I'll work on it. Let, let's try to maybe go another five or ten minutes. Let me ask some more big picture questions, unless the, the nuts and bolts are the nuts and bolts. Um, do we want this world? Do you want to live in this world? Have you thought about that?
1: I think I do. But I also think that... Um, people overestimate their influence. And so I think sort of the first cut job of an economist is to guess what the world's actually like, going to be like and then figure out what it's likely to be the consequence, of what's likely to happen, then maybe on the margin ask which way you'd like to move things on the margin. So a, a humble policy analyst <laughs> thinks in marginal terms. Well, Which way would I want to shuffles things a little if I could yeah. shift it a little, right? So if I wanted to shift this a little, what I'd want to shift toward is a little more foresight I'd like people to sort of realize that they won't be able to make money on wages forever and make sure they have other assets besides their ability to earn wages, real estate, stocks, something else. Because in a world where people mostly have something else too, when their ability to earn wages disappears in the place of, you know, interest rates where you can double your assets every two weeks, um, people will be okay. They'll be able to, Use these other assets to buy enormous amounts of wonderful things from this vast, rich
0: world. So that would uh, be people would be happy to give a little bit to those folks too if they didn't have to start with right. So it wouldn't be very costly. For example, well, it would be costly actually, but you've got a lot, and right. feel sorry so for these people. And, that
1: would be on the margin that where I'd want to push things the most. But you know, if I, if I had the ability to stop this or not, I still think I'd want it to happen because it's a world with. Vastly more wealth and vastly more people who find life worth living. So I think it's wonderful to have lots of people who enjoy their lives. And it's a different life. It's, a more, it's not my life, but it's a life worth
0: living. And what about the environmental issues that people would, would respond and say, well, you know, a trillion robots, where are you going to get the energy to, to plug them in at night? And well, uh, the
1: universe has enormous amounts of raw material, including energy. Uh, in terms of physics, there's enough energy to run all this. And these things can be really small, actually. These can be like millimeter-sized robots. There's no, in principle, reason they have to be the same size as we are.
0: It's going to hold the scissors <laughs> to cut my hair. Something like that. <laughs> well, you know, just,
1: just to bite it with their teeth. <laughs> but uh, the longer-term thing about the environment, though, is that the, one of the major reasons people are are cautious about the environment today for good reason is that because we are biological creatures, uh, we need biological inputs, which requires a healthy enough ecosystem to supply those things and and not poison us with, uh, and so people want to keep the environment reasonably healthy and surviving in order to not die (laughs) because our bodies need it, right? But if we have machine bodies, if the, if the world becomes dominated by machine bodies, then they won't need the environment in the same way we do. And they'll be much less eager to preserve it. Now, they might keep parks going and keep things, zoos going as some sort of preserve of the past, but in terms of vast areas of the ocean or, or the continent, which they might find other uses for, it's hard to see them saving it all for the view or the. Why? Well, if, they, if they're really rich. Don't
0: I want a sunset? Well, well the question a- is how
1: much are you willing to pay for it?
0: Right. I've got a lot of money.
1: But you're not the only one in this world.
0: Right. But a lot of people want that sunset. They want to enjoy the sunset, right?
1: So it, this world is a world of people who are much closer to subsistence than our world. So the vast majority of these creatures, because uh, reproduction is so easy, it becomes much more of a Malthusian-type scenario where per capita wealth falls and uh, people are individually uh, more struggling to make sure they survive. Um, but there are so many of them that the world is still vastly wealthier. So the question is, poor people like that, how much do they want to spend to save a sunset? Uh, and historically, it's more limited. A part of us being very rich today means we are in, indulge a wide range of sort of preferences that come to our heads, which aren't very functional in the sense that they aren't making us more competitive or something, they're just what we want.
0: But this, That's is, okay. this is a much bleaker scenario than I than I expected. I, I thought going back to the great arc of human history, and we started our conversation with this, so maybe this is a good place to end. We've seen a transformation toward enormously larger numbers of people leading much more materially rich lives. And longer. Yes. Right? So there's right. an increase in longevity. There's an increase in command over material well-being. You're portraying a technological change here that I keep pushing you to think of as not much different from immigration or population growth, which to me both actually lead to that same process, an enrichment of greater numbers of people and higher income per capita. But you're suggesting this is going to be a very bleak world of so, of super rich people who have command over these things and then a bunch of drudges who limp along in near subsistence. I, why wouldn't it be more like the transformation that we've had but faster and better? In other if, words, I want, hear, I want to hear more optimism <laughs> and if, if not, well, let's, why wouldn't we try to stop the it? The long it run horrible. stable trend
1: <laughs> is toward more knowledge, more capacity, more power, a larger total product in the world. That's the clear, stable, long-run trend. We will continue to be able to do more, to increase our capacity, to draw on more raw materials with more insight and more ways to deal with them. That long-term trend has produced in the past an acceleration in growth rates. We've learned not only how to grow, but how to grow faster. And so we were able to grow faster. Uh, Over this time, we had a relatively stable human reproduction technology humans' bodies haven't changed very much in the last two million years, even though an enormous range of other things have. When we could grow the economy only very slowly, human reproduction capacities could easily overwhelm growth rates and per capita wealth stayed low. As our ability to grow wealth became faster than human reproduction rates, per capita wealth rose. But in part, that's not just a consequence of growing the wealth faster, it's a consequence of this stable, stuck reproduction technology, of we were only able to grow humans so fast. If this next transition, this next singularity, as I suspect, will involve a technology which allows the rapid increase in the population, now there is no particular reason to expect per capita wealth to rise, and in fact there's a reason to expect it to fall. Total wealth is just different than per capita wealth. It's a ratio between two things, and everything depends on how fast the population can grow.
0: But I don't care about total wealth, particularly, especially personally. Okay. I care about my wealth, right? We all care about our individual stake. Well, of course, your wealth, uh, personal wealth, could increase
1: too, as long as you are selective about your population. <laughs> you know, you could spend your increased wealth on having more copies of Russ and therefore having a larger Rus population, or you could spend your personal wealth on having one Rus who is richer. Each individual will continue to have those options. Individuals can either have more more descendants, a larger clan, or a smaller clan that's richer. Uh, But when population is possible, it's possible now to grow the other way. It's possible to choose to use your larger wealth to have a much larger population
0: where per-person wealth is smaller. Are these... Copies are not biological. Doesn't matter. Well, it doesn't matter because they're going to, they have different resource demands. Right. Right, as if they could have...
1: There's still resource demands. I understand, matter. but
0: they could be dramatically lower than than a human being. Right, right? but
1: it's the, it's the rate of growth in the demands that's the key thing. And uh, the, their, that resource thing is prior of their price. The price of making one of these copies is first the fixed cost of creating in the first place, then there's the maintenance cost of right. supplying with resources.
0: Just like a person. Those, right. Just like those, a child.
1: As those prices fall, the price of making these things will fall. And some people will just go wild making a lot of copies. It's a Pretty safe prediction. Some people will go, and that will dominate the population, will be the small fraction of people who choose to have lots of copies. And so the mathematics of the per capita thing is dominated by those people.
0: But that doesn't have to be you. You don't have to make a lot right, of copies. No, I understand that point. Yeah, no, I understand that point. Um, But those copies will make me richer, I think. Yes. If you, the other person's copies. Yes, they will. That's right. Yeah. Absolutely. Not going to make me poor.
1: Unless you are relying on your ability to compete with them and to earn wages. And if they're you are just like me. If, they're not, if you own things like real estate, patents, stock, if you own things that whose value doesn't decrease as they get more competitive. Again,
0: you wouldn't say that with respect to immigration or population growth. What's different here?
1: There are lots of things in our society whose value gets smaller because they're no longer as valuable because other things outcompete them. So, if, if if you you know twenty years ago, if you had the de- own the patent to a cell phone, a twenty years old circus cell phone, that would be worth a lot of money. But as better designs of cell phones came along, that patent became less valuable. With technological progress, some kinds of assets become less valuable because they are rights to produce certain kinds of things at, in certain Agreed. technical ways. So, your ability to earn wages is more like a certain kind of patent. It depends on how competitive you are compared to the things you'd be competing with.
0: True. So that's why you
1: can't count on that as a permanent source of wealth if, if you're not going to be improving.
0: I understand that. So why does that not hold in population growth generally? You wouldn't want to argue that population growth has lowered the return to labor. You could argue with ceteris paribus, but ceteris paribus doesn't mean anything there, right? It, it, it Holding all things equal. You can't hold all things equal. That, that's the… sure. But, There's people who want to. More people want to go to college. There's all kinds of things that offset those. Those just that micro supply and demand in that one market, right? Right. So are are none of those coming into play here? Or if you not, am, Again, I, am I on the wrong track? Think about or?
1: you know, thousands of years ago in the farming world, uh, there was growth in the economy, but the population could grow quickly, and these other effects couldn't counteract it very quickly. Some, right. So in fact. Thousands of years ago, when the population in an area grew, then in fact, the wages of labor fell relative, say, to the price of land. And in fact, um, if you wanted to own something that was permanently valuable back then, it was more important to own, say, land or, or some True. other right than the ability to have a child who could then make money because on the margin, he would be near subsistence and the expense of feeding the kid would be pretty close to the... A cost of creating them in the first place, you know, and so you, you, it's not a winning strategy to try to create kids three thousand years ago. Right, right. It's not an asset that has long-term value. Uh, so if in the future our ability to create population very quickly is similar, then we'll we'll similarly have a rap the ability to rapidly increase the population relative to the growth rate. So we'll we'll be more in that regime than we were thousands of years ago. It's it's about two different timescales and how they compare. Again, the main reason per capita wealth is increasing now is that we can't increase the population as fast as we can increase wealth.
0: That's a mechanical way to say it. I, that, that's one way to say it. The other way to say it is our rate of productivity change is outstripping our right. population growth. And they're not, and as you pointed out earlier, they're not totally exogenous. They're not totally independent. Um, Uh, we'll think about this some more. Do you want to say, uh, uh, last question, which has to be asked of Robin Hanson, would you bet on this happening?
1: Not only would I bet on it, I think we should bet on it. And All of these sorts of things about what might happen in the future could be illuminated and elaborated in betting market prices if only somebody wanted to have betting markets on these <laughs> things. It would be mechanically possible. It's feasible, somebody would have to subsidize it, but you could create these markets, you could have betting prices on the different kind of AI, when they might show up. And the virtue of that would be to help us prepare for it, or? It would, first of all, say what would likely to happen, so it would help you personally try to anticipate and prepare. It would, of course, also offer possibilities for, you know, conditional on various policies, whether better things would be likely to happen or not. So you could offer policy conditional estimates out of these things. You could say, should we you know subsidize robotics more or whatever else it would be uh should we have more you know global trade in robotics et cetera you could you could ask about consequences you cared about and how it depended on decisions you might make. Uh, people tend to throw up their hands and think well, the future is complicated, so nobody can predict anything, so nobody should think about it. And I think it's not that bad, <laughs> but you also shouldn't just rely on visionaries who you know spout various. Exciting stuff because there's the incentives there are poor and they'll tell you things you want to hear or things that excite you, but that's not very realistic. <laughs> if you want realistic, hard headed estimates about the future, I don't see how you can do much better. And to get people to bet on it, uh, people it's not the sort of thing people unfortunately will bet on uh, just for fun because it's a lot more fun to bet on short term things. You get the payoff quickly, but you could get people to bet on it if you subsidized it. And unfortunately, nobody stepped up to do that yet.
0: Uh, I talked to Mark Cuban. Um, who shows a willingness to subsidize interesting, creative things? Uh, he's the owner of the Dallas Mavericks, and he's been very entrepreneurial lately in the sports world. My guest today has been Robin Hanson. Robin, thanks for being a very uh, patient and uh, time-intensive guest. to delightful. Talk. Thanks for having me. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty.